0: Peter tonight, and I'm talking today with Steve Ban, a renowned golf coach to a number of very fabulous tour golfers who've won a lot of events around the world. And the topic we're talking about is why the difference. What's the difference between some players who perform well and others who perform very well? And Steve's been coaching for over 30 years, and has a great wealth of knowledge around the greatest athletes in the world on the golf course. But Steve, just to start with. First of all, thank you very much for chatting.
1: Uh, my pleasure, Pete.
0: And what I'm really curious about is, you were a very good golfer yourself, and yet your career has been made, definitely been made around coaching. So, what is it about coaching that led you to making that a career for yourself? Uh,
1: look, I'd have to say it was my second preference. Uh, if I was capable of still being out there playing the tour, that's what I, that's what I would be doing. But uh, Look, they reached a point. I was always a tinkerer. The uh, f- very first watch I got, I pulled it to bits to see how it worked. And, and with my own golf, I was very much a tinkerer as well. I was always trying to see uh, how the golf swing works, how different types of shots work. And I was perhaps a little bit too technically minded to play as well as I probably could have. And I've learned a lot of things since that if I'd done them differently, maybe I w- my career would have lasted a little longer. But. Uh, uh, look, I, I just love coaching. I love the golf swing, I love the game of golf and I, I love helping people to improve their golf and as I say it's not my first preference, but I've been able to be working at the best golf tournaments in the world, not as a player, but uh, as a coach and uh, that's something I feel very privileged about.
0: And when we look at the best players in the world, the thing I guess their scoreboard is uh, you know, winning major championships, but winning tournaments and, and shooting low scores. And there are going to be players that appear to be like really good players, but they're still not quite the very best. So, what do you, have you seen over time that seems to separate the good players from the really good ones?
1: I think the there's a, a multi. I mean, it's a very open question because there may be um, multiple things that make up the difference between between why there's players who are good players and why their players are exceptional players but if we just talk about tournament winners so somebody who's capable of getting to the top 100 in the world as a professional golfer boys and girls without question the one thing that I've seen in all of the ones that I've been lucky enough to work with or speaking to their coaches or players over the years is that they're all ultra competitive they will compete at anything so they're always testing themselves pushing themselves to new limits, new personal bests, and they they basically don't make excuses. They know that this is the level that they want to get to, and they'll test themselves to get there. So the one thing that we've seen is that they're ultra-competitive. Not saying that other tournament winners aren't ultra-competitive, but maybe not as competitive.
0: Let's talk a little bit around that, because in the past sometimes competitiveness has been talked about with people who perform badly. It's almost like they're going to misbehave if they don't play really well but from what you're saying it's more around the player competing to become the best they can against their own personal standards.
1: They do, they set their own, their own standards and a little bit of the nature of golf as well, I mean you're not playing so much against somebody, you're playing against the course and, and against your own standards so if it comes down to hitting greens, hitting fairways, Uh, Sand save, up and down percentages, number of putts. There's lots of personal goals that you can set uh, for yourself. And and all the players that I've worked with, even when they've come off with one of their best rounds, you know, they might have shot a 64 or 65 in a tournament, they're still talking about the two or three things that they could have done better. And uh, I always find that amazing because most people, you know, would give an arm or a leg to shoot a 65 Mm. or a 66. But uh, it's all, no, look, I left two or three out there and I'm going to go to the range and work on it.
0: And is that trainable? Is that competitiveness trainable?
1: I think uh, it, it is trainable if you can start early enough and interpret that testing, that competitiveness, as playing a game. Because basically that's all it is. Is If you can learn to play lots of games, and all games have an outcome, there's a winner and there's a loser and there's a score, there's high scores and there's low scores, If you can make a game out of it so the person's brain learns to enjoy, oh, this is fun, this is a game, I can't wait to play another game, uh, then it's trainable because their brain will steer them to want to do it. But if they interpret it as just painful and it's just like doing homework or some type of hardship, their brain will steer them away from it. Some people don't like to play games, don't like to test because they don't like to find out the standard that they really are at and most times when people do test they will find out that they're not as good as they'd like to think they are so you've got to want to find out how good you are you've got to want to set standards and improve those standards and and if you if you look at it that way and make a game of it it's definitely trainable
0: Mm, so the ones who are averse to that perhaps they're sort of interpreting their, their lower scores as being maybe i'm not good enough
1: Maybe I'm not good enough, um, maybe it's uh, some type of failure, maybe they don't have the self-belief that if they do put the work in that they can actually get to the next uh, the next level. Look, it, it might sound a, a bit hard, but uh, if they're not prepared to test, they're not prepared to play the games and set the standards, they're really wasting their time.
0: So what are some examples of some of the games that they might play? Uh,
1: one of the things that... Uh, that uh, we discovered um, quite a few years ago is that uh, the real intimidation on the golf course is the boundaries, it's not actually the target it's the boundaries, so it's the left and right side of the fairway, so you've got long grass, trees, uh, out-of-bounds fences, water hazards, bunkers, all of those things the left and right side and the front and back of the green and, and even the hole, the left and right side of the hole, so it's the boundaries that are intimidating so what we try and do with all of our games is we create boundary intimidation and just in general we we set a 10% rule so if you've got a 100 meter shot we'll put a 10 meter boundary out there and then we set a game where you're going to hit 10 balls and uh, see how many of those 10 shots you can get through those boundary goals Uh, we say 7 out of 10 is par for a a good player Um, obviously a tournament player wants to do better than 7 out of 10 and, uh, or the other thing we might do is just do three in a row and so using your full competition routine um, you're going to hit three shots in a row through that so you can then take that practice experience out on the golf course with some confidence when you look at that boundary, that target and uh, and draw on that confidence that you, that you developed during practice so there's lots of games you can add points to it and do it head to head do it by yourself with uh, your own personal best so it's, it's unlimited, the, the games that you can create about every part of golf.
0: So we're looking to develop competitiveness. That's certainly one of the things that we talk about with all great players. And, you know, they hate losing and then they'll do whatever they need to. What else? How do, how do great players, how do they talk to themselves?
1: Uh, the great players uh, manage their emotions. And I'm, I'm differentiating between great and really good here. They definitely manage their emotions better, and and uh, not to say that they don't get upset, but once they do get upset after hitting a poor shot, they're, they're able to process that, put it out of the way, and then get on with uh, the next shot. They don't take um, any residual negative emotion with them to the next shot, and you've only got to do that once or twice around just carry that negative emotion over into the next shot once or twice around, and that's the difference between maybe a top 25 in a tournament and being there um, coming down the back nine contending for the win Mm. Uh, so I, I would say as well as being competitive even though they're ferocious with their competitiveness when they're disappointed with a setback of a bad shot or a bad break the good ones are able to get it out of their system by the time they get to the next shot
0: So, and on the other side of things, we talked about the players, we'll call them negative emotions from the result of poor shots, and of course that can spiral if they hit more than one poor shot in a row. But on the other side, if they're performing really well, um, is it true that the, the players who aren't quite so good just get overexcited and that can negatively affect their performance?
1: Well that's part of managing the emotions as well, you can be, there's a negative emotion and then what might seem like a positive emotion of getting over excited but uh, you know that side of, of the um, of the emotions can uh, lead to negative effects as well so uh, um, where most of the time where we, you know, we get a little bit overconfident, perhaps a little aggressive to a target and you end up short sighting yourself and you know, you can ruin a good run of birdies and end up finishing it off with a double or a triple bogey through being actually overexcited, overconfident, overpositive. Um, so it's it's still managing your emotions. The good players find the band that they operate best in, and they they never get outside of it. They never get too high, and they never get too low. And if they do, they have the tools to be able to bring themselves back where they need to be so that they can give each and every shot their best, uh, their best focus and attention. And
0: really good players can shoot very low scores. Good players can too, but they don't do it very often. The really good players can shoot low scores more regularly. Hmm. Um, I, I know, like with my own performance, and I've seen it with other players, they, they'll get under par to a certain point, and all of a sudden the excitement takes over or it's, wow. Well, you know, I've never done this before. Mm. So how do the good players actually get over that hurdle of, of perform- continually getting low and lower scores?
1: Well, they don't set limits of the bar for themselves. They, they really don't. I mean, I, I think uh, Anna, Annika Sorenstrom, um, you know, she spent uh, her whole junior career focusing on and uh, through the training that she, she had... Um, uh, focusing on shooting 54, it was 54 was the score. 18 under par was the score that she was focusing on. So when Annika shot 59, 13 under par in LPGA event, and she's the only female to do that uh, so far um, in tournament competition, she was actually five short of a goal. Mm. So, so she the standard that she set was I'm going to shoot 18 under par, knowing that it's it's I'm not going to say not possible, but it's highly unlikely that you're ever going to achieve it. But if that is, is what you're aiming for, anything short of that means that you're still striving to it rather than trying to hang on to something. A lot of players get to five, six, seven under par, and that's kind of their limit. And then they think about, well, hang on, I can't afford to... So their mindset changes. They go from being a chaser to a defender and, uh, and uh, often that's when they'll make a mistake because they'll get a little negative rather than, rather than positive. But, look, I was there the day Stuart Appleby shot 59 to win the Greenbrier and, uh, and uh, he, he basically went out that day and, and there was no stopping him. He was just going to try and birdie every hole and, uh, you know, he nearly did mm-hmm. and it's it quite incredible. I mean, it's only happened once in his career He's had some eight or nine, uh, nine unders, but the good players, uh, they, don't, they don't set a limit for themselves. I think that's the simple answer. You know, <clears throat> uh, one of the um, uh, uh, great quotes of uh, a great American baseball, Yogi Berra, who had some really quirky quotes when he was asked you know, why he hadn't retired uh, <clears throat> late in his career, he said, well, how old would you be if you didn't know how old that you were? And I've always switched that around, not switched it around, used that in golf, was what would par be if you didn't know what par was? Mm. So par, par is the limit. So what would it be if you didn't know what it was? So what score, if you went out there and had the least number of shots and there was no par, there was no speed limit on that golf course, what would you actually shoot? And it's always a good question. People go, well, I don't know, how would you know how, how many under or over are you are? Well, you don't. Yeah. All you're doing is trying to get the ball in the hole in the least number of shots possible. Would you shoot better? And I think you probably would because you look at match play with the great players. Most times in match play, they can be seven, eight, nine under par at the end of the match. And we you know, the world match play every year, the extension match play. And that's the type of scores they shoot. And these are the same guys. You ask them afterwards how many under they were, and they go, I don't know. All I was trying to do was birdie and win every hole. They've got no idea how on the par hour. and when they've gone back and gone through it they've gone, Wow, would you have shot sixty three if you went out there in a stroke event? Probably not.
0: Yeah. Maybe we should go back to uh, having the holes without having a having a par rating against them.
1: Yeah, just get it in the hole and yeah, make yeah. the as number of shots as possible. But there's a mindset in there. There is a mindset in there that there is no limits. And uh, Annika was, you know, I can birdie every hole. That's my ultimate goal. One day I'm gonna shoot 54. 59 was a pretty good result. And uh, I think that the great players, again, have that ability that when they get six under par, they're trying to get seven under par. And when they get seven, they're trying to get eight. When they get eight, they're trying to get nine. Without being silly and not you know being careless and reckless, but they're just trying to get further and further under par. And they have no, no speed limit.
0: Excellent. Now, I'm sure that there are going to be plenty of listeners who are thinking hey, when I play golf, um, the grey cloud descends or the black cloud descends or the red mist descends, or all the same sort of thing. I get that I need to be able to control my emotions, but how do I do that? So what advice would you have for a player who, who, who does get upset and angry and frustrated and knows that it affects their golf and really wants to do something about it? What are some of the steps they can take?
1: Well, the good news is I've never met a golfer yet who doesn't get upset Frustrated, sometimes uh, a little bit down in the dumps about their ability, and they go through they go through a slump. And it, everyone's been through it, and and it's at all different levels So knowing that everyone goes through it, that you're not alone, means that there is tools, there is things that you can do do to uh, get your mind back where it needs to be. Um, I think first and foremost is I often encourage people to remember that you need to be always trying to do something now trying to do something is much more positive than trying not to do something mm. so a lot of people when they're, when they're in a bit of a slump and they're they're, they're scoring and their handicap might have plateaued and they're just getting frustrated is they're in a bit of a reactive cycle where they're out there trying not to do something so the first some things that you need to try to do is is to break golf down to a series of holes and then break holes down to a series of shots and then those series of shots is develop a routine that you can be consistent with in your approach for, for playing that shot and then golf becomes a... a um, the, the final score or the outcome is a combination of those shots on each hole and those holes over a, over a round of golf so routine is key and if you, if you look back on, on your series of bad shots and bad holes most times you get out of your routine. Now the routine's pretty simple um, and every golf shot has it and uh, we, we use a four, four step routine and step one of the routine is the five questions decide on the shots you're going to hit and the five questions are is what is my target, how far is it, how is the wind going to affect it is it uphill or is it downhill and what's the ball going to do when it hits the ground now if you can ask those five questions like a pilot first jumping in the cockpit and asking his um, going through his pilot's checklist before he flies there's a good chance that you're going to make the right decision but if you're carrying a negative emotion from the last bad shot and you can't wait to get that out of the way you might skip one of those five questions and then you'll make a mistake that leads to missing another target that leads to another bogey and then And the whole thing gets into that negative negative cycle. So we have to become regimented in our routine. And those five questions, then once you've decided on the shot, you can then prepare the feel of the swing that's going to create that shot. Some people can do it by practice swing, visualisation. But now your mind's on what you're trying to do. Um, Step three of the routine is the setup routine. Grip, stance, ball position, posture and aim. That match the shot that you've decided to play. And then step four is we always uh, like to say it's the easiest thing to do and the hardest thing to do at the same time. And the reason it's the easiest thing to do is because there's no further thought required. And the reason that it's the hardest thing to do is because there's no further thought <laughs> required. So. But uh, routine. So, you know, it's a bit of a long-winded answer to the question, Pete, But What you can do is develop a routine, break golf down into a series of shots and holes, and then when you look back after your round of golf, without question you will find any series of bad shots is when you've broken routine and you've carried the negative emotions of those bad shots into the next shot and that's why you've, you haven't been able to get yourself into the right state to play that next shot. So it's trainable. Mm-hmm. And it's trainable in those games that we play in practice uh, it's rather than just being on the range beating balls with with no real thought to it so the game we're practising on the range most times isn't the same game we can take out on the golf course
0: Mm. So with those competitive games on the range that's also an opportunity to practise one, going through the routine and and the shot process the four step process you mentioned and it's also an opportunity to allow yourself to respond appropriately to good and poor shots
1: Exactly, I mean, because we're we're practising the whole thing there is a fifth step to the routine and the, the the fifth step is uh, is is how you react to the shot. If it's a good shot, we want to anchor it. We want to remember what it looked like, what it felt like, what it sounded like, uh, so we can and, and attach an emotion to that. So we've got a good chance of recalling that positive emotion next time we're confronted with that similar shot. Now, if it's a bad shot, we need to process it differently. Uh, we need to evaluate the success or failure with as little emotion as possible and then recognise what we did wrong and what we need to do the next time. Maybe have one more practice swing, go, oh, that's what I'm meant to do, put the club back in the bag. And that's the fifth step of the routine. So you've either got to deal with the shot either positively or negatively. And Tiger Woods, uh, we've all seen him get very frustrated after hitting bad shots. But Tiger leads the bounce-back stats on the PGA Tour every year so he makes a birdie after a bogey more than anybody else throughout his throughout his career so he is able to process that deal with it get that out of his way and by the time he gets to the next shot his mind is on being totally committed to hitting that next shot as well as he possibly can be
0: and it makes so much sense because our brains love things that have a strong emotion attached to them and what we see on the golf course every day is a much stronger emotion attached to a poor shot than to a good shot. With a lot of players, the good shot is almost like it's a a relief or a brush-off or, yeah, well, I should have done that, whereas the poor shot is, you know, clubs going everywhere. And so what you're saying is that they should actually do the opposite.
1: Do the opposite, and, and, uh, and I'll use Tiger as an example as well. Phil Mickelson's very good at it. Uh, as well as that, that, often you see them hit a shot that we expect them to hit, and there'll be a fist pump or there'll be a high five with their caddy, and you think, well, you know, Tiger and Phil do that all the time. What are they doing that for? What they're doing that for is they're adding some emotion to something that was positive to get them to be able to anchor that and get things back on the right. Uh, on the right um, track again, if they've if they've been uh, their scoring has been stalling or they've hit a few bad shots. Phil's probably the best person to hit great shots after some of the worst shots that you'd ever see. So clearly he doesn't carry the negative emotion. He gets himself pumped up and emotional about it. You have to enjoy the good shots and you have to do that. And I see so many young players as you say, just take the good shot for granted and the only emotion they have is the bad one and if you actually look at it in numbers it might only be 10-20% of all the shots they hit are bad shots but in their subconscious uh, mind when it comes to being emotional about something all they can actually recall is negative feelings because of the, uh, the negative emotion they attach to the bad shots so you have to outweigh with human beings, you're going to get angry, you're going to get disappointed but try and at least on the positive side of the ledger be more emotional in a positive way about the good shots than you are negatively um, emotional about the bad ones.
0: That's excellent. Steve, we've, we've covered a number of uh, things with some not just brilliant content but just extraordinary content. We've looked at the importance of competitiveness and the fact that it, it can be developed provided you're prepared to test what you're doing. We've looked at uh, the importance of emotional control and anchoring the, the really good stuff and then finding a way to process the, the not-so-good stuff and also the importance of routine and, and you talked us through the four steps of routine. Steve, that is fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time to have a chat about what some of those differences are between the good players and the great players and uh, I look forward to watching the players that are under your tuition continue to do really well in the future.
1: Absolutely, my pleasure. Pete. Great talking with you.